0: It is well established that chronic kidney disease is associated with increased mortality in heart failure. Does the effect of chronic kidney disease on mortality vary by ejection fraction? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. George Backris, the Director of the Hypertensive Diseases Unit in the section of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at the University of Chicago's Pritzker School of Medicine. Dr. Backris has published over 300 articles and book chapters in the areas of kidney disease, hypertension, and the progression of nephropathy. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Dr. Backris. you have a paper on this very topic, due to be published in the American Journal of Cardiology. Can you please tell us about this work?
1: Yeah, actually, uh, thank you very much for bringing that up. It's actually been published. It has just come out, and it was really a collaborative effort with my friends at the University of Alabama uh, that have actually gone into a very large database and actually looked at the uh, uh, incidence of kidney disease and various stages in people with uh, varying degrees of heart failure, varying class 1 through uh, class uh, 4. Now, it's interesting, the stages of kidney disease, and and I, I guess... For the audience, we should really define what the stages of kidney disease are. For those interested, by the way, there is a a publication in the American Journal of Kidney Diseases that was published in uh, a supplement in 2002 and has all the gory details in there about staging and what actually has gone into the formulation of the staging, et cetera. But simply put, so-called stage 1 nephropathy is pretty much normal. It's people with GFRs above 90 Stage 2 nephropathy are people with GFRs between 60 and 89. Stage 3, which, by the way, is the most prevalent type of nephropathy, are people with estimated GFRs between 30 and 59. And then stage 4 is kind of pre-dialysis, 15 to 29. And then stage 5 is people on dialysis. Mm. Now, that's important to understand because what stage of nephropathy you're in actually correlates with the risk that's associated with it. And there is a fairly linear risk, cardiovascular risk, I should say, fairly linear cardiovascular risk associated with decline in GFR. So as GFR declines, especially at levels below 60, the cardiovascular risk goes up proportionally. Now, in heart failure, there is no question That people with, I mean, one of the findings of this study was that people that had higher degrees of renal insufficiency when they developed heart failure initially had much higher cardiovascular event rates. Now, I don't think any cardiologist is going to be surprised by that, but I think maybe a generalist would be. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important that if you have a patient who's, say, 65 years old and is coming in and has a creatinine of 0.9 and has developed heart failure, they're probably going to do better overall terms of just general uh, mortality risk, then the same patient coming in, same age, but they have a creatinine, say, of 1.7 or 1.8. That person is going to have much higher cardiovascular risk over the same period of time.
0: Okay. Now, uh, what else did you find in terms of ejection fraction?
1: Well, it turns out that the worse your kidney function, the lower your ejection fraction is going to be. And, And again, that's not totally surprising because if you look at a failing heart, it doesn't really have a great capacity to pump. And if you have kidneys that are not functioning appropriately as well, you're going to be more likely to be volume overloaded. And if you're volume overloaded, that actually adds extra stress onto the heart and it's going to further worsen ejection fraction. And so these are people that are going to need more aggressive diuresis. They're going to need more aggressive management to help improve cardiac function. And then the worst possible scenario, and there weren't too many of these, but I I can just tell you from other studies, if you have the patient with diabetes who is spilling a large amount of protein, who subsequently has hypoalbuminemia, those patients are an absolute nightmare if they have heart failure because they are so volume sensitive because they have no oncotic pressure. So the vessels are leaking. Everywhere, including into the pulmonary circuit, and so these people, if they drink an extra glass of water, can literally be tipped over into pulmonary edema. So very, very difficult to manage.
0: Any tips on how to diurese these folks?
1: You, to maximally diurese these people, you really need to put them at bed rest with leg elevation above their heart, so using gravity to your advantage, and IV uh, loop diuretics. Short of that, and I mean strict bed rest, short of that, you're not going to have a very good time diuresing them. I'm specifically now talking about people with albumins in the neighborhood of 2.6, 2.4, who have GFRs in the neighborhood of 40, 35, in that range. Many times, even if they're in that range, the diuretics don't work quite well because you need albumin to carry the diuretic to the tubule so it can work. So many times we end up doing what's called CVVH, continuous uh, veno-veno hemofiltration. And so basically putting lines in the patient and using not the dialysis machine, but a smaller apparatus to uh, not filter the blood, but take off the fluid because the kidneys aren't able to do that. And as a result, cardiac function improves. Actually, kidney function is maintained.
0: So, George, what implications does this have as our population gets older?
1: To reiterate the mantra of prevention, I think really recognizing at an earlier time point that patients are going to be at risk for developing heart failure if they have renal insufficiency, to try to be very aggressive with blood pressure control and glucose control and lipid control to try to preserve cardiac function as much as we can And try to stave off development of heart failure because once you have heart failure, once you have renal insufficiency, it is extremely difficult and anyone that's managed these patients knows it is virtually impossible to bring them back towards any kind of absolutely reasonable normal life. Uh, Sure, they can function, but they're now taking a truckload of pills to help them function and it's better to prevent this because once it's happened, yes, you can manage it, but it's just very, very difficult.
0: So heart failure and chronic kidney disease share all of these etiological factors, including obviously diabetes and hypertension. Uh, can you comment on this?
1: Oh, sure. It's well known that diabetes, hypertension, and for that matter, obesity and and the components of the uh, metabolic syndrome are all devastating and really uh, affect uh, the kidney and the heart in very negative ways, increasing the risk for fibrosis of the tissues and increasing a whole host of cytokines that ultimately injure the organ. The control of blood pressure, lipids, and glucose markedly reduce the risk uh, and reduce this process from going on. But we now know, by the way, that in heart failure, uh, blocking the hormone aldosterone is a critical determinant in reducing mortality. And it turns out now blocking aldosterone in kidney disease is also critically important because it tends to preserve kidney function as
0: well. And how do you block it?
1: Well, you block it with a very commonly used drug that's been around since the early 1960s, spironolactone. Ah. There's a more recent uh, drug that does not cause gynecomastia, which is a common side effect of spironolactone, called a plurinone, but that's quite expensive, actually, because it's very difficult to synthesize. Now, the problem with these agents, you say, well, why aren't they into drinking water? Well, they're not into drinking water because when you shed off aldosterone, hyperkalemia is a real problem. And many of these patients are already taking drugs that block the renin-angiotensin system, like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and you add this to the mix, and the risk for developing hyperkalemia is actually fairly profound. So one has to be very careful, especially if the patient's taking digoxin for their heart failure. You don't want potassiums much above 5 in that setting. It's, it's fine to be up around five and a half, five point six. 5.6. In fact, there is a paper that will be coming out. It's an analysis we've done of the Ephesus trial, which is a a mortality trial in heart failure in people with renal insufficiency that basically looked at eplerinone. And we, this the second paper that's coming out specifically focuses on potassium issues. And we showed in this paper that the benefit on mortality in these patients, not taking digoxin, was seen up to potassiums of 5.8. Yeah. So I think one has to be a little bit tolerant. And again, you can't just indiscriminately give these doses. And we're not talking about high doses. We're talking about 25 milligrams.
0: Of spironolactone, that's all?
1: That's all. Hmm. But the patient needs to be educated about high potassium foods. They need to be educated about non They need to be educated on a whole host of things that can affect potassium. And it requires a lifestyle change. And many times physicians don't do that or don't have the time to do that. And then the patient gets into trouble and they blame the drug. These are drugs that are actually very effective, but you need to put in the equation time to educate the patient.
0: Is there anything to do short of stopping the drug if their potassiums do start climbing to a dangerous level?
1: Well, some people use K-exalate. I mean, obviously, you can stop the drug, but if they go up to dangerous levels, K-exalate is quite effective, which is a binding resin that works in the gut to bind potassium. And basically, when you give it with sorbitol, as you evacuate the gut, the potassium goes out and you can actually remove a fair amount of potassium that way.
0: How often do you recommend monitoring potassium levels in these patients on spironolactone?
1: Oh, uh, I think when you first started, I think you really need to do it very carefully within the first week to month. And in fact, in, in patients like this, I basically check it a week out. I check it again. If it's okay, I check it again in three weeks. And then I usually see the patient back by six weeks. And you don't have to see the patient when you're checking it. they can just pop into whatever they're local hospital is and get it checked and you get the report. But I never, ever send anybody out on this without a full understanding of what could happen to them if they don't listen to the educational background.
0: I want to thank our guest today, Dr. George Backris. We've been discussing chronic kidney disease and heart failure. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals, For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.